0: Come and try so hard to breathe that God's not real. Pretend the things of this world have brought them peace of mind. But with the dawn of each new day, new thrills they try to.
1: Well, that seems like it was right on cue from this morning, amen? Good, that's good. Boy, the music has been great this, this day, and we've been certainly grateful. Uh, the trio, Quartet, and now uh, Brother Don, his daughter. What a wonderful thing that is, just really good. And uh, boy, I'll tell you what, what a great song that is. Jesus is still the answer. Jesus is still the answer. Well, we're in our series on marriage, and so today we're going to kick it off with dealing with this issue of contentment today. And again, we always start off with our verse in Genesis, in the beginning God created, and we're certainly glad that he's the designer. And as the designer, we certainly can go to him and look for the answers we need in marriage. Again, we have a world that has all kinds of answers I mean, you go to, to the bookstore, you'll find self-help books in every area of life, but I'll tell you, there's no better self-help book than the Word of God, and I think it's important that we understand that when it comes to marriage, and too many times we outsmart ourselves. I think we overthink it, and we get the idea that I guess you've got to have a PhD in front of your name, or you have to have some kind of degree, but I'm going to tell you something, some of the greatest marriages in this world were were, uh, uh, lived out by people who didn't even have an education, and so I'm going to tell you something, it's not about how, how smart you are intellectually speaking, it doesn't have anything to do as we're going to find here, I'm going to be frank with you, it's not even your economic status, it has nothing to do with your education levels and all of that, it has to do with you putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and applying his principles and his truths, and so we're going to see that, and I'm going to note a few things here as we get into some more, just a few statistics as we kick off this one as well. But, boy, I'll tell you what, we talked about that, that water cycle or water, how that works and how you just can't remove a gear from a watch or it just won't keep time. How, you know, you can't remove even one element of an assembly line or it's just going to come to a screeching halt. You know, when it gets down to the Word of God and it talks about marriage, you can't be pulling out certain pieces and parts of the marriage and say, well, you know, I want to abide by that one, but let's tear this one out, and that one's okay, but this one's a little bit weird. Let's check that off or mark it off. Can't do that. You have to do it either all God's way or you get the result. It's not like God's way at all. I mean, it's either you're in or out with him in that regard. So it's important that you, you recognize that the Word of God is still the answer in the area of marriage. And that's what we've been trying to emphasize according uh, uh, along the way. Now, let me share some things. Again, this is not from my normal location. Normally, I've been dealing with, I said, the state of our union, you know. But I found some articles on childtrend.org, and and here's what it states. And, again, I just want to bring some of these things to light. Why? Because I think it's important to recognize the attack that Satan is is under is is taking or making on the mar- on marriage today? I'm telling you, marriage is a, such a foundational institution. If the devil can undermine marriage, he's going he's having a, he's going to have a field day, and we're watching him do it. And we're recognizing we see the devastation that it's causing even now. And so it's important that we are very aware of this. Well, an article on ChildTrends.org states this way. It says. The families into which children are born and in which they spend their early part of childhood have changed dramatically over the past several decades. Among the most notable changes is an increase in nonmarital childbearing—that is, the percentage of all children born to unmarried parents. Recent estimates show that about 40 percent of births in the United States occur outside of marriage, up to 28 percent in 1990, uh, and and. Uh, you know, compared to. So it's up from 28% in 1990 to 40% now. This increase is consistent with changes in non-marital childbearing seen worldwide. So it's not just in our country that we're seeing this happen, but we're seeing it around the world even. And so it's not just, uh, again, it's not just an American thing, it's, it's across the board. Now, new analysis by Child Trends indicates that The likelihood that a child would be born to unmarried parents varies substantially by the mother's current education level and by her race and ethnicity. No one will argue these facts, by the way. Let me tell you this. If you look up statistics on unwed motherhood, you're going to find that everyone agrees with what was just said, that the current education level, race, and ethnicity also make a difference. But I'll tell you another thing they point to. They point to the economic status of a a woman as well. Now, Let me say this, and I'm just going to, listen, I'm not going to argue the facts. I will agree 100% with every fact that I've read about how that affects this uh, unwed motherhood. However, may I say this? Despite the education level, despite race or ethnicity, despite economic status, let me tell you something. It seems that there's one element that continues to escape our experts, and that's a moral issue. Nobody seems to make morality an issue in any of this anymore. Now listen, the only reason I say that is because biblically and scripturally, God outlines what he expects and what he demands of of his creation. Now, we can point or we can blame an education, we can blame income, we can blame social position for this scourge of unwed children. But the root of the matter is personal responsibility. When it's all said and done, you, as an individual, have a responsibility to make sure you do things God's way. You could say, well, you don't understand how I was brought up. I'm not saying that I don't have sympathy for you. I'm not even saying that I may not feel very emotionally, uh, you know, kind of tied and say, boy, I wish I could just give her a big hug and tell her that I'm sorry that this had to happen and all of that. I'm not talking about having compassion on people. I am saying, however, this that we cannot continue to run back to the problem that we have or, or make excuses for why we continue to move forward in this same area. If we're going to see a change in this area, we're going to take responsibility in this area. Now, bad choices equal bad outcomes. And when a society has abandoned God's moral law, and that's found in the Word of God, it only leads in one direction, and that is down. It only goes down. Now, I believe it is extremely hypocritical to endorse sexual activity before marriage but then point out how socially devastating unwed motherhood is. I think it's absolutely ridiculous how we as a government and how our culture today will sit there and say, look at the devastation that unwed motherhood causes. Look at how it, it affects the, uh, the, the, the financial stability of a a young woman who has a child out of wedlock, how it affects her ability to make income in the future, but yet we're the very ones that taught her in school how to do it safely, supposedly. From the time they're little, we're telling them that they're just mere animals because of evolution and that they can't control their desires. Therefore, they're going to have this and do these things whether or not we want them to, so let's make sure that we teach them how to do it correctly and safely, and then let's give them birth control to make sure that they're safe with it. And if that doesn't work, we provide them with abortion. Now, listen, I don't know about you, but I've got a real problem with the whole system, okay? And what I'm just trying to say is is that we need to get back to God's way to do things, his blueprint. That's the secret to this problem. (laughs) It is not simply putting money on people's, in people's pockets. It's not putting food on, food on a table. There have been poor people with us forever and ever and ever. The Bible says the poor will be with you always. But when you abandon God's moral law, you're going to have a morally corrupt society. And may I say that we are headed in the wrong direction. And it is not just acceptable today, it seems to me, in the, the world. It seems becoming more acceptable in the church, these kind of things. Now, again, it's not right, it's not biblical, and it's not scriptural. It is devastating, yes, to the culture in which we live. It is devastating to families and and homes, but it is most importantly devastating to mothers and their children when there's no father in the home. Again, I think it's hypocritical. It's amazing to me. This is a moral issue. Can I tell you that most of the problems in America are moral issues? How many people had money in the 1930s during the Great Depression? I'm going to tell you something. We better start getting back to the reality that if we're going to fix America, we fix it by getting to the heart. The heart's the key. And I, there's no reason why we can't utilize programs and tools to help people along and to encourage them and give them hope. But my friend, if we're not including and allowing God to have a place in that, that uh, recovery, we are wasting money, we're wasting time. It's only gonna get worse. When we deviate as a society from God's moral law, we are destined for decay and ultimate destruction. And I'm sorry, but I believe that is what we are seeing in our country today. It is seismic activity taking place underneath. It was before it was superficial. It was on the surface. I'm seeing now the, the result of years and years and years of supplanting God, and now we're seeing earthquakes, so to speak, of moral eruptions. It's horrible what's taking place. Now listen, we might feel sympathy and we certainly ought to feel sympathy for people who find themselves in difficult, tough situations whether it is of their own doing in our mind or not. This idea that we are somehow a step above or a a, a bit above other people is a bunch of ridiculous bull. The bottom line is is that every last one of us could be right in the same predicament, in the same situation, if it wasn't for the very God or the family God placed us in. Let's not get so high on our horses that we think somehow, well, they get what they deserve. No, that's ridiculous. If we got what we deserve, we'd burn in hell. So I think it's ridiculous not to have compassion for people who are locked into systems or into beliefs that they can't fight out of, can't dig out of. That's why we have a responsibility to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to give them hope of the word of God. You want to make a difference in your country? Go win some people to Jesus Christ that don't see him as their head yet. Show them that there is a better way. We sit and complain all day long about the situation we find ourselves in in America, but what are we doing to fix the problem? Oh, I can't do anything about it, preacher. That's all up there in in Washington. They're the ones that have to put the programs in place. They're the ones that have to make all the decisions. No, 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 no. They can't fix this problem here. This is a moral issue. Listen, daddy's not being present in homes is not going to be something that our president or anybody else can dictate. That's going to be something that only God can change in the heart of a person. For a man to take responsibility for his family, for that child that he brought into this world, I don't care what politician makes it law that he has to care for them. It wouldn't do any good. He's got to have that in his heart. And Jesus Christ alone will put that in his life, in his heart. We got to get Christ to the world. We got to get Christ to our our families, our homes. Proverbs 16, 25 says, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There is no better way than God's way. And we got to lovingly uphold the biblical standard. We have to ensure that our, listen to this statement that I wrote down. You say, why do you think it's so great? I actually think it's pretty good. I really do. Listen to this. We must lovingly uphold the biblical standard and ensure that our compassion for others does not become contempt for God. Our compassion for others sometimes becomes contempt for God. Listen, that's, that's a problem. We can't allow that to take place. We cannot look to God and say, somehow, you are a big meanie, God, saying that's wrong. Some people just can't help it. That's just the situation they find themselves in. Wait a second. Be careful your compassion for others doesn't become contempt for God. He is right, and if they will follow his commandments, if they will allow him to change their life like he hopefully has changed yours and mine, then they too can experience blessing and joy in their life as well. Now again, what's the purpose of sharing some of these key findings, these facts? Again, it's to have, heighten our awareness of Satan's attack on marriage. Now, I'm going to tell you what, our marriages are in a mess today. I mean, in the sense of marriage is in a mess overall. Not only are marriage is struggling today, but the f- fact that there is a lack of marriage, it's a problem. You go visiting with us in certain neighborhoods where there are primarily children without dads in the home you see the devastation that it's causing. Instead of sitting back in our little homes and taking it easy and separating ourselves from all the bad ills of the world, we need to get out there and we need to see it. Then we need to get a burden for people who are in need of Jesus Christ, because that's the ones, those are the ones that need him. Not just the the ones sitting over here in a $300,000 home, but people that are down in the dumps that are struggling just to make ends meet. You say, well, we're paying all their bills. I don't care if we're paying their bills or not. They're in a mess because they don't have Christ in their life or at the center of their life. You could put somebody up in the Taj Mahal, but they're miserable without Jesus Christ, whether they know it or not. It's time that we recognize the great need of people. It's a spiritual need. It's not physical. Everything in our media is about physically providing for people, but that is not the answer to any problem, whether it's a marriage problem whether it's, uh, it, listen, money, you say, well, money helps with everything. Money makes life a lot easier. I don't care if it makes life a lot easier or not. The bottom line is, is that a man can be moral without money. But money will never make a man moral. We need Jesus Christ is what we need in our world. You need him. I need him. Everybody needs him. Jesus is still the answer, Amen. We said be committed, be kind. I just had to get a little preaching in before I start teaching, okay? I mean, honestly. I tell you, my heart breaks. I, the, there are so many good people all within, within five miles of this place. I can't even tell you how many good people there are. I am concerned, however, that some are souring on people because of what they're seeing in the media. Don't, don't believe everything you see and don't group everybody together. There are good people all around you. And let's get the gospel to people that are good so they can become godly. Give them hope, not only in this life, but in the next as well. I, I'm, just, I'm just concerned about those things. I, I don't know. So we found that we need to be committed to one another in a marriage. There has to be commitment. And we said that commitment is the foundation of any real relationship. It promotes trust and facilitates truth and honesty. Again, real growth in a marriage is a result of being rooted in commitment. It has to be there. There has to be an element of commitment there. We said you need to be kind. need to be kind. Kindness goes a long ways. Boy, just being kind can often make a big difference in a marriage. Most of the time, kindness alone would Probably keep it together when it seems like it should fall apart. He said, be considerate. Again, Marion Wright Edelman said, being considerate of others will take you further in life than any college or professional degree. I, I kind of agree with her there. Learn to be considerate. would be amazed how many people draw to you. You know, isn't it funny sometimes how people are, I, I have no friends. Well, the Bible says show yourself friendly. You know, it's, it's funny how we want everyone to cater to our needs and be concerned about us, but we don't have time to be concerned about others, and we wonder why no one wants to hang out with us. In this case, in marriage, be considerate of one another. It'll go a long ways to causing that other person to say, I want to stick around a while. Then today, I want to start on being content, addressing this issue of contentment. Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Again, how can we discuss contentment without going to the Apostle Paul? And I know we, we touched on this in one of our other series slightly, and I'm not going to dwell on what I've taught you before. There'll be a few things that I'll mention again, only because of the importance of it. And then we're going to get into some other things and try to kind of make it practical and sensible here, but... Be content. Boy, marriages, there has to be an element of contentment in a marriage. It just seems to me that based on what we're looking at on social media and all these different platforms like Facebook and other things, there's always people in our face all the time. There's always other homes being shown and lives being shared and relationships being exalted. And if we're not careful, we can really become discontented with our relationship our home, our marriage, our status, pretty quick. Boy, i tell you what, contentment is truly important in a marriage. It's vital. It says in Philippians 4.11, the Apostle Paul says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And again, that concept of contentment was so critical to the Apostle Paul that He would share a similar thought with his son in the faith, Timothy, over in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, when he said, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now again, in that passage, the apostle is pointing out that doing right while being content is great gain. And I think that's important to note. Doing right while being content is great gain. You know, many work hard at doing right. I'm not going to question that. I think a number of people work real hard at doing right. But sadly, few never get over wanting something other than right. Did you get what I just said? Few ever really get over wanting something other than right. What I guess I'm trying to say is, is that although they work hard at doing right, there's a part of them that isn't really content doing just right. That doesn't get it done. It doesn't meet all the need in their life. See, our prayer shouldn't only be, Lord, help me to do right, but rather ought to be, Lord, make me content doing right. Let me be happy and satisfied doing right. Let that be enough, just doing right. I watch teenagers over and over again. It's not uncommon. They, they want to do right. They want to please mom and dad. They want to please the pastor and the youth director. They want to please leaders in the church and even kind of go alongside and, and be an example to others and so forth. They're trying to do right. They're working at doing right. But there's something inside that wants to do wrong. And they can never be truly satisfied and only content with just doing right. They want something other than right. So they're working at doing right, but they're not content with doing right. See, godliness with contentment is great gain. He says doing right and also being content in doing right, that's great gain. Do you know what the other is? Confusion. Frustration. And most of us in our Christian lives aren't content nor are we satisfied in doing simply right. We want something wrong too. And that's a problem, isn't it? May I say that that principle would apply to marriage, too. I mean, we want what we the right things in our marriages, but if we're discontented with certain things, I mean, doing the right thing in marriage is great until I'm uncomfortable doing it. And so we're content as long as it's going well, but if we're doing right and it's not everything we expect it to be, then we're not really content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Doing the right thing and being content doing it, no matter what, that's great gain, he says. Now, contentment is rest or quietness of the mind in the present condition. It, It goes on to say, satisfaction which holds the mind in peace, restraining complaint, opposition, or further desire, and often implying a moderate degree of happiness. Now, let me ask the question, How do you know if you have a discontented heart? How do you know that? Well, let me give you a few signs of a discontented heart or signs of discontentment. Number one, complaining. Complaining. Number two, worrying. Why do we worry? We're afraid of what might even happen, right? We wouldn't be content with that, right? Anxious. Maybe you're preoccupied with what you don't have, whether it be material or otherwise. Again, how do you know if you're discontented in heart? Well, how about jealous, greedy, never satisfied with anything or anyone, hard to please, or critical, Sad. I'm not talking about you just lost a loved one. That's not what we're addressing. But a constant state of feeling sad. We're probably discontented. Disappointed. That ain't even a complete list. Let me tell you something. I'm not saying that you're a discontented person if we occasionally feel or experience some of these. But it's important that we be honest with ourselves instead of avoiding the truth. I do believe that discontentment is more of a staple in the lives of believers today than we would like to admit. We need to take a good look at that list. We need to ask ourselves, do I find myself complaining often? Do I worry? Am I anxious? Am I preoccupied with what I don't have? Am I greedy, jealous, jealous? Am I never satisfied with anything or anyone, or do I find myself dissatisfied more often than not? Am I hard to please? Am I critical? Am I sad and disappointed continually or often? Maybe you're discontented. You know, we're good at recognizing problems, and we, we, we uh, uh, are good at treating symptoms. I mean, I, you don't have to go too... Listen, if, if, if one of these... Uh, and, and some of them are a little bit out of sorts, but if you take some of these little sound bear things on the wall, if one of them was like super crooked and you walked into here, I guarantee everybody would be like, hey, preacher, look at that. That thing's really crooked. That, 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 that soundboard on that wall is crooked. Boy, look at it. Crooked as a dog's hind leg. I'd be like, I, I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have to say to you, you know, it's been like that for a month. You'd be like, no, it hasn't. Because you know why? We're all good at noticing things that need corrected and fixed. You know, we're good at recognizing problems. I mean, that's our nature. We're good at seeing everybody's problems. And we're, we're pretty good even at treating symptoms. But the great need in all our lives is to treat the source of the problem. That's the real key here. Dealing with the root problems. Now, when we follow the trail of our disappointment, And discontentment to its point of origin, we're gonna find that it leads right back to one place and one place only the heart. That's where discontentment raises its ugly head, really. It is not simply in what we have or don't have, discontentment is rooted in the heart. That's the source, the heart. But hold on, it goes a little deeper than that because it's not just our heart, but what we're going to find is that in the heart, we're going to find some mistaken belief about God that's working itself out in some various way. We have somehow have a a bad opinion or view of God somewhere, somehow. Something's going wrong and awry. See, we want and we deserve something else in our marriage. We want and we deserve something else in our husband. We want and we deserve something else in our love life. We want and we deserve something else in terms of our income. We want and deserve something else in terms of our living situation. We want and deserve something else in terms of our personal importance even. See, this discontentment is a symptom of what, and, and, and the question is, what's the source then? We know there's a problem. We recognize that. We try to treat the problem. You know how we usually do that? By, well, I'll get another job and make more money or I'll, I'll try to find another husband or another wife or I'll try to get this fixed or that fixed. I'll buy a new house or I'll get a new car. Then I'll be content. That doesn't fix the problem because it's a heart problem. In our, if our life is fueled with these kind of thoughts, then something is malfunctioning in here. You've got to understand that God, he designed us in a way so that when we are firing on all cylinders, we will not be content, uh, discontented. We will be content. We are functioning as he intended. We'll be content. So if you are not content, then you're not functioning properly because there's a malfunction in your heart. And in my heart, if that's me. And if that's the case, then our beliefs have been corrupted. If we want to live a life of contentment, then that life must be fueled by what we believe to be true about God, then. So consider just a couple of areas. Number one, you have to believe that God is in control. You will never be content for the most part until you understand and learn that God is in control. Number two, you have to believe that God is loving. You, you, you have to just come to the conclusion and realize that, wait, even if this is happening to me and I don't understand it, God still loves me and he is not going to bring anything in my life to hurt me or harm me, he'll utilize it. It may be painful, but he'll use it to build me. He loves me. You must believe God is generous. Listen, if you don't believe God is generous, then you're always going to be second-guessing God's uh, provision in your life. Well, why isn't there more? If he really loves me, if he's really God, if he's able to provide, then why do I have so little compared to others? Why is it that I don't have what they have? How's come when I compare myself to others, that's a problem? It seems I always fall short. You know, Eve was deceived by Satan to think that God was withholding something good from her and even what was best for her. Do you realize that? This is an age-old problem that Satan has has continued to, to, to bring up. To, it's like walking into you know the, the, the ocean, or not so much the ocean, but into like a little lake or a little river, and, and you take a walk into there, and there's that soft sand at the bottom, so to speak, that muck, so to speak, and you step in it, and it just kind of goes mud like, you know, and the water gets dirty and you can't see down there any longer. And that's what Satan does in this area. He continually raises discontentment up. He continues to say, oh, wait, God, are you kidding me? If he's so in control, how's come this can happen to you? If he's so loving, why do you allow that? If he's so generous, how's come you're the only one that doesn't have all those nice things? He just keeps bringing it up. All the way back in the book of Genesis with Eve, the same song and dance, the same story over and over and over again, and we keep falling prey to it. He keeps tripping us up with the same lie over and over and over again. Like Eve, we can believe that God is not giving us all that he could. And if he wanted to, he could give me more. We somehow come to the conclusion that he's withholding what we're entitled to. I mean, I'm a good person and I'm a Christian and there's people out in the world living like the devil and, and they, got, they got a girlfriend, they got a boyfriend, they got a nice car, they got a nice house. What about me? I deserve something. That's discontentment. And that's, there's nothing different than Eve now. We're responding like she did to the lies of Satan. It's human nature to believe we deserve more than we do. That's just human nature. I mean, everybody, for the most part now, and there are some exceptions, I'm sure, but see themselves as better than they really are, more talented than they really are, more capable than they really are. That's normally how it goes. Studies have found that to be true overall. We believe we deserve more than we really do in most cases. It's called the flesh. But let's take a closer look at the Apostle Paul and hear what he has to say about this issue of discontentment. He said that he had learned to be content. What he's basically saying is he chose to be content. He had gone through some experiences. He's dealt with the Lord enough to know that, you know what? I, I'm going to be content. God is in control. God is loving, and God is generous. And even though it may not appear that way to me, I've learned to be content. Because what God gives me is always what's best in the end. Or what God doesn't give me is always what's best in the end. He's learned. Many would say, well, when my circumstances change, then I will too. If I had the money he or she has, if I had the wife that they have, if I had the job that they have, then I'd be content too. Not so. See, it's a heart problem. Again, it'd be something else that you feel you've been shortchanged on. It's always something. It's just like, you know, you know how it is, you go out and you buy that car, And then in two years from now, they come out with another model, and you say, man, I sure wish that one I really like. Now, you're not maybe discontented with the car you have, but there's something about that other one you think, man, if I could trade that in, I would love to have that one. I like that. Those lines are sweet. I mean, there's something in our human nature that we're never truly satisfied. Can I tell you, that is a tremendous danger for marriage, by the way. Man, let me tell you something. If you don't get a handle on that flesh, you don't deal with that heart, you're going to start finding yourself looking elsewhere to meet needs in your life that are meant to be met in marriage. And let me tell you something, that's mere heartache and destruction. And I'm not just talking about physically. I'm talking about even just with this, just in general, things. Your husband's working or something and you're all upset because, man, he doesn't spend enough time at home. I feel like I deserve a husband that's here to help me more. Wait, whoa, 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 hold on, stop for a second. Let's let's before we jump the gun here, before we assume that we deserve more, you better think about the cost of everything. And number two, ask yourself, do I at least am I thankful and am I content that I at least have a husband that goes out to work and brings it home? I'm just saying sometimes we lose perspective here and we somehow get the idea and we're discontented. Boy, I wish my wife would lose a little bit more weight. Doesn't she know I'm a health nut and I want a wife that's a little more skinny? I can't stand it. So she had five kids, whatever. I mean, are you kidding me? Think it through, fellas. I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, I I mean, we just get a little bit, you know, because it's the flesh, it's the heart again. God, what are you doing up there? You know what I need? Why aren't you meeting my needs? And we're looking really to other people to do that now because God isn't. So now we're going to put the pressure on our mate. Now we're going to look to them and say, if, if God can't make me happy, then you better. That'll destroy your marriage. Discontentment will wreck you. It'll ruin your relationships. Again, I like this, and I used it in a series recently, but it says, it says I had no shoes and complained until I met a man who had no feet. It's amazing how bad it is being married until we're not. You know how it is? Before you're married, all you want to do is be married. And then once you're married, sometimes you don't even want to be married. It's like no matter what situation you're in, you're discontented. Well, this ain't everything I thought it would be. Well, guess what? Life isn't everything we thought it would be. You better learn to be content. And if there's a real problem, there's a situation that needs addressed, then man up, woman up, and deal with it. Face it head on. Don't hope that something changes in your marriage or that your mate figures it out on their own. You better talk about it. You better direct, direct some attention to it. You better say, listen, I'm finding this difficult. Maybe I have a bad perspective. Maybe I don't see things the way I should. Maybe I don't understand the biblical process. But can you, let's talk about it. we got to get to the bottom of this because I'm, I'm going insane here. But before we lose this marriage of which both of us want, I hope, let's work through this. Let's face it. Let's deal with it. Because I don't want to feel like this anymore. I can't feel like this. And then you say, well, what if your husband or wife doesn't care? Well, you better learn to be content anyway then. And you better learn how to pray then. You know, with I, I must be honest with you. One of the lost arts in marriage today is prayer and fasting. Do you think, do you think for a minute that women have always been wonderful, wonderful wives and wonderful homemakers and wonderful friends? Do you think it's always been a, just a, a wonderful party and marriage all through the centuries up till today? Do you think all men have always been perfect and they're, they're just always focused on the family they would rather do for the kids than go out and hunt? I mean, I'm just saying, there have always been problems in marriages. There's always issues in marriage. There are a couple things that I do remember, though, about marriage. One, I chose. I said I do. Do you know my parents didn't make me marry Sherry? I chose to. And number two, he said once I've made that decision, I better be willing to fight for it. At all costs, fight for it. We have to learn to be content in so many things. So many times, our problems aren't rooted in a real issue. They're rooted in the fact that our needs aren't being met the way we want them met. And we're discontented. Well, I was was talking to my friend the other day, and her husband brought her flowers home. My husband has never brought me flowers. Whoa, 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 be careful. You may just get a root of discontentment in there. And let me tell you something, you're going to be miserable, and your husband will be like, what's wrong, honey? Nothing. Well, just things have seemed kind of weird the last couple of days. No, that's fine. Everything's fine. Why would you think that? Everything's fine. And he's like, what in the world's going on? He's supposed to read your mind. And then if you do tell him, well, I was talking to so-and-so, and her husband brought her flowers home. And he says, oh, big deal. Why would he waste money on flowers? Instead of getting all bent out of shape, just go, well, I guess you're right. I mean, I'm just saying, is it really that important that you get flowers? Is that what determines whether or not you're loved? I'm just saying, sometimes we forget. Now, if a husband's wise, he he doesn't have to go get flowers, but maybe along the way, he's doing things that are considerate. Remember, we talked about being considerate. But I'm just saying, sometimes we have these expectations that, and they're not even expectations we would have gotten on our own. We're talking to the wrong people if they're telling us things that are making us con, uh, making us discontented in our marriages. We are with the wrong people if somehow in listening to the wrong things, watching the wrong programs, reading the wrong books, looking at the wrong sites, getting the wrong information. If for some reason every time we get off of there, we're thinking, man. Everybody else has it better than me. That is discontentment. That's a heart problem. You better deal with it. And one of the things you better do is make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. If nobody told you that husbands are supposed to bring flowers home to their wives, you probably wouldn't even miss them. Get where I'm going with this? The expectation levels sometimes are off the charts because it's crazy. I I feel so sorry for you fellows in this church. I do. I mean, I feel extremely sorry for you. Have to compare, your wife's comparing you to me all the time. I mean, it's got to be miserable at home. I mean, totally miserable. (laughs) Just, my dad said smooth, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But I'll tell you what, this thing, comparing ourselves one with another is a bad thing. Now, again, speaking of my parents, I told this before, too, they taught me that things can always get worse. So you better just enjoy what you got, because it can always get worse. Now, again, that doesn't seem to be very positive, but it does promote contentment. Now, whatever the Apostle Paul's circumstances were, he had learned to be content. Turn over to 2 Corinthians, would you please? 2 Corinthians Notice verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. If you expect little, you'll never be disappointed. (laughs) If you have, if your expectations are low, you'll never be disappointed. Now, Here's what I'm going to say. I think we ought to have high expectations for our children, ourselves, our Christianity. I think all of those things. But, but you need to be very careful that you temper your expectations on others. You know, a husband could never live up to some of the visions of a wife. And sometimes a wife can never live up to the vision that a husband thinks she ought to live up to. We have to temper those expectations and be realistic with those expectations. A mom with four children at home is going to have a hard time spending every waking moment with you, sir. It's a little impossible, okay? I mean, you did help bring them into this world. Well, it just seems and since we got the kids, you don't pay attention to me at all. We got four kids running around the house. It's kind of tough. Now you're one of five used to be all you. Now there's five of you running around. Five kids in the house is rough on a wife. <laughs> now, again, I mean, I understand that a wife ought to try to do her best to, to, to show a little more attention to the husband and the kids. I get all that, and that's a whole other issue. But, man, come on, man. We've got to be realistic in our expectations sometimes. You know? Okay. Notice what he's going through, what he's dealing with. Of the Jews, he says 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. That's unbelievable really, isn't it? 39 stripes, five times. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys, often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watching often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Now that's what Paul's dealing with. I mean, we get leftovers for dinner one night and we're upset. Look what Paul's facing and dealing with. And he says, you know what? I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. That's unbelievable. We'd be hard-pressed to believe that our situation was worse than that of the Apostle Paul. And yet he learned to be content in whatsoever state he was in. So the question is, how could he be content in the mess he found himself in most of the time? Well, you're going to have to come back to find out. I just ended it like we do Vacation Bible School and the missionary story. You're going to have to come back to find out how how the Apostle Paul figured it out. I want to encourage you, though, to learn to be content, and we're going to talk about some of that. And what I'm going to share a few things that we need to do if we're going to learn to be content, if we're going to be content. But I don't know what your expectations are for your marriage, and you know they need to be high, no doubt, but they also have to be realistic. Be very careful. I uh, I was taught by some of the greatest teachers in. World about marriage. You say, Who are they? And may I just say this, and I don't say this, I don't say this to hurt anyone, okay? Um, I learned from my family. I'm telling you, there's something about growing up not only in a home, but watching grandparents and their situations in their lives and how they addressed and dealt with problems and still stayed together that helped teach you how to cope and to deal with marriage. And then when you begin as a per- young person growing up and you start digging into the Word of God and looking at biblical principles and you realize that although sometimes they may not have been as focused on the Scriptures as you are, now they were living by the Scriptures then. They had applied biblical principle. To see it happen, to watch it in real time. It's amazing. Amazing. I came home from the army, and I... My first stop after driving 16 hours from Oklahoma City, and this, is, this has nothing to do, this is not a bad hit on my mom or my parents. This isn't about I didn't want to see them more than anything in the world. That has nothing to do with it. But there were some things that I was addressing and dealing with that they probably have no idea about yet in their life. I pulled into my grandmother's house 16 hours after getting out of the military and driving from Oklahoma, from Oklahoma, straight from Oklahoma City. And I said, Hey, Grandma, how are you doing? She said, I'm doing good. And it wasn't long, we were talking about some things. I had a grandma who lived a tough life, but she had some wisdom. And she learned to cope and to deal with things. She learned how to temper her expectations and how to live in spite of some of those dashed dreams, even. Can I just tell you that everybody in this room that's married are going to have some of the things in their life maybe. There might be something that you wish you had that you don't in your marriage. You better learn to deal with that the right way or it'll become discontentment and it will ultimately create a fracture in the foundation, which could lead to a broken marriage. And I just want to encourage you to temper those expectations, to think about what you do have and not what you don't, and to do your best to learn to be content. Father, we thank you for this time we've had together, and we thank you, Father, for just allowing us to gather tonight. And Lord, um, I can't thank you enough for my sweetheart. I can't thank you enough for the woman, the wife that you've given me. And yet, Lord, I also know that Long before I ever met her, her parents instilled in her the need to be the wife that she is today. They taught her the word of God and they taught her the need to apply those biblical principles. Father, that's what I believe everybody in the room is doing in their own life. They're trying to embrace biblical truth and apply biblical truth. And Lord, they're trying to teach their children those same things because Lord, we want for our children what we see in our own lives, I hope. And if we don't, then we need to fix our lives. Lord, help us to see the problem, to get to the root of the issue, not to simply deal with the symptoms, but to truly get to the root, to fix our hearts. Then, Lord, help us to be able to show this next generation what a good marriage is, what a solid and biblical marriage is. May they see it in real time. Not perfect situations, not circumstances that are always good, but how we deal with them in the right way, a biblical manner, a scriptural path. Father, bless these marriages in here and bless these young people that are looking forward to being married. Help us to embrace you and your word. Help us to have the right view of you. We'll thank you in Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed.